Welcome to the Immigrant Squared podcast. My name is Anna. I was born in one of the former Soviet republics, raised in a small yet very unique country in the Middle East, and have been living in the U.S. for almost 20 years. I've always been curious about different languages, cuisines, music, and traditions. I also always had a desire to help people become their best self. I invite you to join me on an adventure throughout the world as I discover immigrants' stories, learn about new cultures, and together we find new ways to help immigrants unlock their potential. Welcome to episode number six of the Immigrant Squared podcast. This is part two of episode number three, where I interviewed Tinatine Japaridze. In this episode, to celebrate Tinatine's book, Stalin's Millennials, Nostalgia, Trauma, and Nationalism, which is coming out this week on Tuesday, February 15th, you will get a sneak peek into the process of writing this book, the contents of the book, and very valuable advice for immigrants who are struggling in their journey. Um, yes. I know your book is coming really, really soon. So whatever you can reveal, but would love to hear a little bit about what brought up this idea to write this book and what should we expect in the book? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, the book is indeed coming out on the 15th of February. So it is no longer a PDF, but rather an actual book, which I'm extremely excited about. And th- there, there's always that lingering um, sense of, oh, but what if it doesn't get published? You know, when I was writing, I was thinking, who am I really writing this for? Who's going to care about it? And it was just such a wonderful feeling when I got uh, the proofs that I had to actually go through just to make sure that I was able to sign off on everything before it went to print, quite literally. Um, and it was just a great feeling to know that it's no longer just Times New Roman 12, but a font that I wasn't able to locate and the the template that looked like an actual book, a printout from an actual book. So that was a wonderful feeling. And it was my first. So I guess every first child and every birth of the first child is as much as you love all the other children that follow, it, you will always remember that first one. Um, so that that was a great feeling in and of itself. The book was actually born um, as a class paper. Um, for Soviet legacies, interestingly, a Soviet legacy seminar that the former director of the Harriman Institute at Columbia University, where I got my master's degree, um, Alexander Cooley, he actually gave us an assignment for one of the classes to to take several themes. And the themes were as, as follows. It was nostalgia. It was Stalin and nationalism. And we had to concoct a one pager. And it was just so interesting to me to suddenly step outside of my Georgianness and be able to look at when I think of these three terms, what comes to mind. It was just one page. It was very, very brief. And I wrote the one pager. And then Professor Cooley actually asked me if I would consider pursuing that one pager as a term paper for the end of the semester. So then I turned into a full-blown class paper. And based on that, he also suggested that I apply for a PepsiCo grant, which is a travel grant for Harriman students to travel to the region and conduct research there. I got the PepsiCo grant and I went to the Stalin Museum. And every year 
thereafter. So this was in 2016 in December. Every year from that point on, I would visit my family, obviously, in Georgia, but then I would go to the Stalin Museum. And for no reason, I had at that point completed my class paper, it was done. But I would still make small notes and conduct interviews that no one was asking me to conduct necessarily. I would apply for grants and without even thinking that this is for a book. It was just something I was genuinely interested in. I wanted to know why is Stalin so popular when everything else surrounding his popularity suggests otherwise? Um, and I was very interested in the differences between the way the Stalin and the Soviet legacies as well are interpreted and seen through the Georgian prism and then through the Russian prism and comparing the two. Because when we say Stalin is popular in Georgia and Russia, it's different kinds of popularity, different components of, of his um, legacies that are usually discussed by those who say that they approve of Stalin for whatever reason. So I was very intrigued by the sociological polls. I was very intrigued by some, some of the people that I had spoken to, not just the older generation. What really interested me was that there were younger people who were for whatever reason interested in Stalin and for whatever reason uh, approved of of his um, politics, of his legacies, of, of his persona. And then another aspect that I found very curious was that there were multiple Stalins. There was the Georgian Stalin, there was the Sovietized Stalin, and then there was that other Stalin I couldn't really put my finger on on who he was because the other two Stalins Simon Siebeck Montefiore had written a lot about them. So that was something that had been explored in depth by someone who did it so, so fantastically and so in depth. But I wanted to know what was this third one. And initially, the book was called The Tale of Two, uh, The Tale of Three Stalins. I'm sorry. And The Tale of Three Stalins was really about the Georgian Stalin, the Sovietized, Russified, however we want to, to coin him at that point, um, Stalin. And then the third one that I didn't really know who he was or what he was. I was approached uh, by Lexington Books, an imprint of Roman and Littlefield, which is an academic press, um, several. So it was about a year and a half ago that they approached me, or maybe even two years at this point. My now editor, Eric Kunzman, reached out to me not about this topic, but rather about a talk, a presentation that I was supposed to give at the ACES convention in San Francisco in 2019 that I ended up not giving because at that point, after I committed to it, I was uh, working on a campaign for uh, New York City Assembly candidate, and he was unveiling his candidacy on those precise days and I had to be in New York. So I canceled my presentation. It was supposed to be in person. However, the brochure and AC's convention is, is, is very big statewide and not only statewide. So a lot of people fly in from all parts of the world. It's generally a pretty big deal and their brochure travels very fast, even though for those folks who don't necessarily go to the convention, they tend to look at the brochure because they have small blurbs about each of the presentations that they can expect to to see if they do go to to the um, to the conference. My blurb for a talk that I was going to give on the role of the Georgian Orthodox Church in Georgian domestic politics 
was printed even though I never showed up. And um, Eric reached out to me to see if this was part of a broader project, whether it was a PhD dissertation, a book that I was potentially working on. And quite frankly, it was just a blurb because I never even wrote the paper since I was a no show at the convention. There was no need to write the paper and I got so busy with everything else. And we started talking about this and I told him very honestly that I had not even written a paper about it. And he asked me, if I wanted to write on this topic or if I had any other topics because we had a couple of phone conversations and we were clearly on the same page about a lot of things in terms of our interests. And when I told him about this Stalin idea that I had brewing for a few years at that point, he got very interested and he said, you know, why don't you put a proposal together? And in a bizarre way, even though he was the publisher, so he was the editor for the publishing house, he also acted in some capacity also as my agent, which was wonderful because he saw multiple versions and drafts of a proposal that I put together. I had multiple phone conversations with him, which is now that I talk to a lot of my colleagues who swim in that river and are much more experienced in publishing, tell me that, that that's not that's not usually how it goes. Uh, the editor at a publishing house just wants to see your finished proposal and it's either a go or a no go. But he was so invested and I, I truly appreciate that so much. And he really was instrumental in giving me the motivation to put this proposal together, which he eventually ended up selling to the publishing house, um, although buying really because he works for the publishing house as well. Uh, but the board member signed off on it and the book kind of wrote itself. But the reason I told you this sort of long and winding story about how I got the publishing deal is because when I put the proposal together, that third Stalin was not very clear to me either. I didn't really know who the third Stalin was. And the initial drafts that I wrote when Eric and his colleagues read them, they said, you know, the first two Stalins are crystal clear, but we don't quite we can't we can't put our finger on the third Stalin. Can you hash it out a little bit more? Can you refine it a little bit more? Just m kind of mold it into something tangible that it was not. And the only time I was able to understand who that third Stalin was, was when I actually wrote the epilogue of the book. And it all suddenly came together. And what I discovered was that the third Stalin wasn't really about Stalin anymore. It wasn't about the historical Stalin. It was about the um, methodological um, sort of the, the myth of Stalin and also the reflection of ourselves that we see in him, sort of projecting our fears, our dreams, our trauma, our uh, patriotism, some of the terror that, that our ancestors in particular lived through, all of that that we project onto him and whether we love him or hate him, in a way we are complicit in some of these actions, not directly, but rather indirectly, because obviously those who lived through that regime, it's very hard just to to separate the the victims from the doers, because there was there were so many who were complicit with the regime, whether they wanted to survive. Um, they stayed quiet because there there was no other way around it. You spoke up you died, um, that in some capacity, I saw that beyond just the trauma of being the victim, we were also very much a part of this complacency as well. 
And in, in, in a very small way, I felt that by writing this book, it was a little bit of a revelation for myself, but it was very therapeutic as well because it was my part in admitting that perhaps I'm not completely innocent. Perhaps it's too easy just to hide behind the veil of I'm, I am the victim and I was victimized because sometimes, yes, of course, we are victimized, but we are also complicit in this victimization and self-victimization is another trait that some of my compatriots um, are, are able to identify with as well. So it, it was less of a historical project and much more for me a, a psychological project that that was extremely therapeutic, um, difficult, emotionally difficult to write, but physically the book really did write itself and it came it came to life a lot faster than I would have anticipated. Um, I had three full-time jobs and I wrote the book in six months, which I don't remember when I did it. Honestly, when people ask me, oh, but when did you write? I don't remember. I genuinely do not remember writing the book, which is not to say that this is some esoteric, somebody else wrote it and I wasn't physically present. No, not at all. But I genuinely don't remember. All I do remember was I had a deadline. I had two deadlines, one for the proposal, one for the final manuscript. And what I do remember very well is once it was once the book and the manuscript were peer reviewed, which was nerve wracking because I didn't know what they were going to come back with. The peer reviewers could have very easily said this book does not deserve to be published. And at that point, that's it. You you lose everything. You can go to another publishing house. But do you really have the time and the energy for another rejection at that point? Um, when I heard back from the peer reviewers, I do remember very distinctly working on the edits and making some additions that they were recommending that I make. But the actual creation of the first draft, I have no idea how it happened, but it happened and I'm thrilled that it did. That's incredible. I'm so excited and to read Thank your book. You. I really can't wait for it to come out and tell us where it's going to be sold, where can we find it when it comes out in February? It's going to be on the Roman and Littlefield website, but it's also on Amazon. It will be available beyond the ebook version, also as a physical book. Um, it's not just going to be out in the United States, but also in, in Canada, in the UK. I have seen some websites um, in, I think I actually saw at this point, Australia, Germany, um, several Scandinavian countries, um, even Taiwan, which was so interesting to me. Someone was trying to sell a copy for over $4,000, which who would buy it? But please don't buy it <laughs> because it's just really not worth that much. Um, it's but, a lot. Uh, Give yourself some credit. It's a lot of it was, it was very amusing to me because I, I thought it must be a joke. And then I saw that this website uh, was actually updated with the cover. Initially, they did not have a cover because the cover wasn't ready. And then once the cover became available, somebody went in and updated it and has all the blurbs by the different um, reviewers. So I thought someone really took a lot of time to put this together, but it is not worth what the, what they're claiming it's well, worth. Expect an invitation to Taiwan to talk about your book. You did mention in the beginning uh, that you have a couple of upcoming book talks on the East yes. Coast. So let me know and I'll definitely publish that um, information. And I know you are writing another book. Any hints on um, what or we'll keep it secret for now? I will keep it a secret just because once I say it, 
going to have to write it. And there are a couple of ideas that I'm working on simultaneously. And I feel like when I say it out loud, I can't back out of it <laughs> now that I'm planning to go back out of it. But there's one idea that I have that is very loosely uh, derived as an idea from one of the the personal stories that I that I tell in this book. And I'm trying to figure out whether I should write it as a work of nonfiction or as a work of fiction. And once I figure that out, the backbone I have and now I just have to figure out what is going to make the most sense. Uh, but it's something that I that I plan to to work on over this year. So I'm hoping to have something done before the end of the year. Not another six months book. <laughs> I, as much as I would love to say it will be, it won't be. And I'm, frankly, even the, the Stalin book was not in a way I wrote it in six months. But because of all the research that I conducted over the years without even realizing what I was doing, that helped me a great deal because I had all of the research and all I had to do was come up with an idea. And then I was able to cite the appropriate source for this idea that I have at the moment it's going to be harder to do it without actually going to Georgia, spending time there, talking to a bunch of people. Um, it's going to be very heavily based, not so much on archival work, but rather on interviews. So I'm I'm trying to to plan a trip or or two where I can just go there and work solely on having conversations with people who were in some way directly or direct or indirectly involved with the subject matter of, of this next monograph. That's awesome. I would love to go to Georgia next time I go to the Ukraine as well. Um, also, like what you said about if you commit to writing it, then sure. you have to. It reminded me that when you and I met what you told me you're writing a book and then I told you I have this idea to help immigrants and you said well you should write a book and I said you know I don't I don't like writing but maybe I'll start a podcast and you said exactly. yeah, that's a great idea and since you said that's a great idea since that day you inspired me so much I was like well I have to do it because she said I it was a good idea that. so thank you so much for inspiring oh me it's and, a and pleasure. I remember when I saw your LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago and I saw that you were sharing one of your podcasts. I think it was the second one at that point. I was so excited because I remember distinctly having that conversation with you and then you went ahead and did it. And I have so much admiration for, for people who say they're going to do something or they're considering doing something. And then shortly thereafter, they go ahead and do it. So that was very inspiring and very motivating for me as well. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You really inspired me. And on that Thank note, I, I met with you and then I saw all your LinkedIn posts about the book. I was like, maybe I should write a book. And then I went back into and uh, went to my parents' house and there's a box that I brought of memories from Israel and I found this notebook. And apparently when I was 14, I already have three chapters. I started writing a book about my life in Hebrew. Oh. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Maybe I should write a book. And I'll interpret like my immigrant story and started from there. So who knows if I'll write it in Hebrew or at this point in English. But I feel like now I'm committing on the podcast live that I'll write a book. That's <laughs> so great. You now so you've said it. For you the inspiration and definitely cannot wait to read your book and hear about your second book. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask you from all of your incredible experiences as you sat as a serial immigrant. What is uh, some advice 
you have maybe for immigrants that are struggling wherever they are in the world, you know, in a new place? I wish someone gave me this advice when I, particularly when I moved to the US, because at that point, even though my parents were visiting me very actively, it was my first move on my own, truly on my own. I wish someone told me that it's going to be okay and you'll get through it. Because initially, when that initial novelty fades, suddenly you hit a low, inevitably, as a human being. And when it's no longer that exciting because it's no longer that new and the glitter starts to fade a little bit, you realize that you you start questioning the move. You start questioning yourself. You start questioning your decision to make this step, which is a huge step. But I think the most important thing at that point to remember is that you can always go back and everyone can always go back. But can you go forward? And if you make a pact with yourself to go forward and to look ahead instead of looking back, you will always be able to look back no matter what that you no one will ever be able to take your past away from you. But it's the future at that moment in the present that is the most important. And if you commit that you will get through it and getting through it means so many different things for so many different people. I don't think we need to base our immigrant experience on the immigrant experience of a friend or a colleague or something that we read. We all have our own story, our unique story that we are fully in charge of writing, of creating. And I think if we remember that we will get through it because we came this far, we should not go backwards. We should move forward. That is something that I wish someone told me. I had to discover that for myself because there was a moment when I really started questioning whether I made the right decision. I left something very comfortable and very nice back in London for New York. And very soon after making the move, when the, the novelty and the, the glamour started to fade, I was wondering if it was even worth it. In hindsight, it truly was worth it. But what was worth it even more than the original move itself was the fact that I decided to stay and to stick with it and to, to see it through. And if you commit to seeing yourself through and if you believe in yourself enough, as corny as it may sound, that's the beginning of, of something great. If you show everyone that you believe in yourself enough to, to make such a huge move, there's no way other people won't believe in you. But if you don't believe in yourself, how can you expect other people to believe in you? So if you just remember that you are truly in charge of, of your story and you are the one who is writing it, nothing can ever come in the way. Thank you. That is an incredible piece of advice that I wish I had. Uh, my immigration to the U.S. was not decided by me. It was decided by my parents because I was a teenager. But I decided to stay and not go back yes. to Israel because when I graduated high school here, I, I could have gone back. And I um, remember that decision was a hard one, sure. but I wish somebody would have given me that advice. So I think that's really, really powerful. Thank you so, so much for joining the podcast. I hope to have you again soon to talk more about your book and other things and your next journey after D.C., wherever it will be. Thank and, you so uh, much. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Immigrant Squared podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor.com. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes. Thank you.